I th- this part of organic matters is not, I want to say personal, that's kind of crazy to me, but it is. What we just did last week, what happened, I want to say in the world last week has never happened before. I talked about it with my physics professor 40 years ago, and he and I agreed that it would be 20 years happening. Well, it was 40 years happening, but nuclear fusion breakthrough is going to deliver clean power. It's going to be almost too cheap to meter. It may be another 20 years, but but what we've been waiting on as a successful fusion attempt where you've got more energy going out or coming out than you had going in, and it just happened. So listen to this story. It, it's very, very interesting, and, and it's going to make a difference in the world, not probably while I'm here, but for you younger folks, certainly while you're here. To me, this is kind of like a Wright Brothers or Nikolai Tesla moment in our history. The Lawrence Livermore National Lab, LLNL, for you, accomplished what's being called the Holy Grail of Fusion Research. It achieved fusion ignition. In other words, what I was just managing in, I call eighth grade English, it managed to get more energy out than it put in. There's not much of it, but Believe me, in the course of history of how fusion is going to come along, it's a big deal. And I'm quoting this from a news release. In a press conference, U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said, This is one of the most impressive feats of our entire 21st century so far. She then compared it to the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. Oh, cool. And noted, but we're not yet ready for a transatlantic flight. We got a lot to learn yet, folks, but this is, we're getting the airplane put together. According to the LLNL, it achieved what calls a scientific energy break-even, meaning it produced more energy from fusion than the laser used to make it happen. Researchers have been trying to do this since the 1950s. That's how long I've been interested in it. In the past, two major approaches have been used in fusion research. The most popular is called the tokamak, or magnetic confinement. That's where strong magnetic fields can find hot plasma in the shape, kind of a donut shape, continuously at very low pressure. None have achieved the actual break-even moment as of at least this most recent test. The other approach, theorized shortly after lasers were invented in the 60s, was to fire big lasers at a target for very short periods at very high pressure. According to the LLNL, this revolutionary idea became... Inertial confinement fusion, kicking off more than the past 60 years of research and developing in lasers, optics, diagnostics, target fabrication, computer modeling and simulation, and of course, experimental designs. In this current experiment, the researchers used the National Ignition Facility, everything has the letters, NIF, which was developed originally for bomb research. And what sounds like the Atoms of Peace programs of the 50s, strange story, incidentally, they turned 192 high-powered ultraviolet lasers toward a single pellet of deuterium and triterium isotopes, which are from hydrogen, folks, about the size of a pencil eraser, compressing it and creating a high-temperature, high-pressure plasma that imploded and ignited the fusion reaction. The blast lasted, listen to this, 100 trillionths of a second. No way to ever think of that. And heated the target to 3 million degrees Celsius. 
According to the LLNL, in LLNL's experiment surpassed the fusion threshold by delivering 2.05 megajoules of energy to the target, resulting in a 3.15 megajoules of fusion output. Other words, folks, that's what they were shooting for, pardon the pun. They got more energy out than they put in, demonstrating for the first time a most fundamental science basis of an inertial fusion energy. We've known it was possible, we did not know how to do it until now. Incidentally, not a lot of energy, but do bear in mind, just so you'll know that they know it's positive. The difference in energy, which is about 1.1 kilowatt hours, 0.3 kilowatt hours, 1.1 megajoules, was enough to boil a kettle of water. Wow, a small start. It's also scientific energy break-even, they call it, where they measure the energy output of the lasers, but not the input energy it took to fire the lasers, which is considerably more. That's the kind of an engineering even breakthrough which must be reached to make fusion energy practical. At some point, they also have to figure out how to do this you know, about 10 times a second. And as science goes, Gramholm is not the, alone in considering uh, this is a Wright Brothers or a Zephram Cochrane. Incidentally, <laughs> nobody knows that name. He is the inventor of the warp drive program that you see kind of shown on Star Trek, a little fakier more than it was, but he did invent that. Arthur Terrell, a plasma physicist who has written about the effort to achieve fusion, told the Financial Times magazine that if this is confirmed and has since been confirmed, folks, we are witnessing a true moment in history. Folks, it's like a milestone that opens up realistic prospects of cheap, nearly unlimited power without the radioactive waste that dogs current nuclear fission plants or the carbon emissions that plague all of our fossil fuel energy plants. And doing so, they not only unlock the potential to mitigate a worldwide climate change crisis, and it really would if we can get to it in time, but they have opened the door to the potential of world power parity. Other words, we ain't gonna run out. Where more affluent and impoverished states alike could conceivably avail themselves of a stable, affordable, long-term virtually forever, supply of power. Here it might be said that McKinley himself is probably getting a little ahead of himself, but Michael Bluck of the Center for Nuclear Engineering at Imperial College in London agreed that this is really a big deal, but told The Guardian that the output of the experiment was high-speed neutrons, X-rays, gamma rays, radiant heating, none that is of any use to us in and of itself, at least at this time in history. We've got to convert it to stuff that we can work with. They sort of solved the physics issue, and now they got to look squarely at what it's going to take in the way of engineering issues. Not to beat a dead horse, folks, but to use the Wright brothers' analogy again. It took about 16 years to get from Kitty Hawk to the first transatlantic flight, and then another 18 years before the first passenger flight across the Atlantic came to be. However, this is no doubt, this is a game changer. World improving, life-saving history unfolding in front of our very eyes. But it takes time to commercialize new technologies. We're a long way from Mr. Fusion of Back to the Future, if you remember the movie. Well, we're talking here in all honesty, folks, that, that uh, there's a lot of people saying, oh, this is going to solve climate change. But commercial fusion is probably still decades away, and our carbon emissions are happening now. Some, like Bill Gates, don't 
think that it matters. In his book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, he wrote that we should forget about 2030 targets and think big and plan for the big technological changes that will ensure long-term success. He's right in some ways. All kinds of technophiles will point to fusion and say we don't have to worry anymore. Not too early, folks. Technology will save us. But before this week is out, someone will say that fusion can be used to make hydrogen. And maybe, but I always bring this up at my top point in life, probably not in my lifetime. And for my two cents worth, which I always do throw in <laughs> on my own show, until we actually do get to where fusion is a reality in, in, in its uses, we do have to keep pushing for energy efficiency, reducing demand, and increasing our use of renewables. Those of you listening to me, I've never been really against nuclear energy. I was against the way we protected and used it without uh, proper science. It's just that I prefer fusion by far over fission. <laughs> and it so happens there's an enormous fusion reactor safely banked a few million miles from us. It really is. It delivers more than we could ever use. And it's just about eight minutes away. Oh, and it's wireless. We call it the sun. And sort of in a related article, but very new news, the federal government on Monday passed announced another $325 million for agricultural projects that are intended directly to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The latest list of 71 recipients for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Climate Smart Commodities Program primarily involves small and underserved farmers and ranchers. The little guys, folks, which we've really been ignoring. The payments follow a $2.8 billion award in September to 70 projects, mostly, again, large-scale efforts, backed by universities, businesses, and, of course, agricultural groups. So it's a kind of a drop in the hat compared to the big guys, but the little fellas, folks, is really what makes this whole setup tick. What makes you feel good about it, folks, it's, it's important that we send a message that it's not about the size of your operation, but that you don't only benefit from the programs like this if you're a large-scale producer. Vilsack, which in case you don't know who he is, folks, he's uh, USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack. That's what he told the Associated Press anyway. And quoting here, if you're a producer that historically has not been able to participate fully and completely in programs at the USDA, then that, this program is going to be different. The goal of the program is to use financial incentives to expand markets for producers who try and do implement practices that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. More than a thousand proposals have been submitted to the USDA to participate in this program so far. The reason I like the, the input of money is that the underserved farmers and ranchers who would benefit from that latest funding are those who are beginners from socially disadvantaged communities, veterans, and those with limited financial resources. Just to give you a fill-in over the last four years or so since then, this has not been happening before. All the money that we directed, even though we said it might be going towards trying to get the better environment, clean the air, all went to giant corporations. 
all went to multi-billionaires, as they always say, the top 2% of the money makers. The little guy, the guy down here living across the street from me that's raising his goats or his cow, didn't have any advantage at all. As a matter of fact, it actually made his job harder because he had to fight and compete against the giant uh, mega-monopolies. For the sake of brevity, I will not go through every individual money handout, but it is, is all towards the small to intermediate, actually really the small grower, the smaller farmer, the small producer. This is long overdue. The previous administration could give a care less about a small farmer. He only got one vote from him. This is going to change the complexion of how we deal with our agriculture if it goes through. Well, it's going through if we can live with it through the next generation or so. Folks, just to tie this up, agriculture causes an estimate of 12% or so of the nation's entire climate warning emissions. And this president, Joe Biden, has set a goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions by half by the year 2030 here in the United States. Need I say more? Bless us if we can continue on this program. Thanks for staying tuned to Organic Matters.